I don't know what the hell it is, Bill. I've been smoking this pot all day, and I still can't get high. What time are you smoking? Well, all marijuana is the same, isn't it? That's the mistake a lot of people make. But not in Vietnam. <laughs> Well, it was one fine morning, I was knocked out of bed by a thumb-thumb rhythm I heard over my head. I waited through the hall to see what it could be. It was a rock and roll uprising all around me. Now there's a radio station called WCDN FM Ann Arbor, the home of alternative radio radio. radio. <laughs> I sure wish I could get one of those shirts. If you're just joining us, you've got living writers and John Hodgman and T. Hetzel here. Welcome, John. What was that crazy music? <laughs> well, it was um, it was kindly found for us by by Brian Delaney, who's engineering in the engineering hot seat today. And it's a uh, Brian. Are you on mic too? It's like BBC sound sound bites. Uh, yeah, it's actually uh, the John Baker tapes. From the BBC Radiophonics Archives. Wow. Yeah, really great music. I want that to be my new theme song. <laughs> As you walk down the street and Well, it, just, it, sounds, it sounds like uh, an educational film from the 70s, which, I mean, I'm sure it comes from the 60s or so. It sounds like that, that brand of electronic music they, they used to introduce Doctor Who and stuff. <laughs> Exactly. I was also reminded of R2-D2 a little bit. Like, yeah. like he might have perked up like that would be something he could dance to. Is that the Living Writers theme song? <laughs> no, but maybe it will be after no, this. No, I called it. I called it. <laughs> okay, well, arm wrestle for it. Oops. I have I have my own theme song anyway. <laughs> what is your theme song? Is it the one that's on your on your iPhone? Oh, this uh, on iPhone? Your have iPhone. you ever heard of these, these iPhones? <laughs> on your iPhone. I, uh, well, I have, I have a theme song that is written for me by Jonathan Colton, my, my Feral Mountain Man troubadour. <laughs> a um, nice photo in, in more information than you require, not an animal. Yes. Under no, his no, 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 no. He's a, he is a, he's a human being, just one who has an enormous beard, eats raw meat, and can uh, bite through bicycle chains with his razor-sharp teeth. But uh, and like he's a also Wolverine. The, yes, like a Wolverine, indeed, like a Michigan Wolverine. Um, but he's a he's also a gentle soul who writes music and um, apparently is enjoying some success on the internet. Bless him. And therefore, he is now uh, in uh, England and Ireland, uh, fulfilling his lifelong dream of chasing all the cats out of Ireland. So he could not come with me to Michigan yet again. Because today you'll be at Borders tonight. I'll be at Borders tonight, tonight at 7 p.m. 7 p.m. And that's that's the downtown Borders. Yeah. Right? On Liberty. If that's what you tell me. Well, it's... it's... All, I, all I know is where the limousine takes me. <laughs> that's which right. is actually not a joke. <laughs> Did you have a limo, John? A, what I, happened? Not a, not a limousine. Not a stretch oh. limousine. No? Um, is it like a stretch Hummer? A town, yeah, it is. <laughs> It's a space shuttle white, thirteen seat, stretch Hummer. It's actually the front half of a Hummer. Half of it is Hummer, half of it is Cadillac Escalade. I, I wondered why you were wearing the ruffled shirt. 
today. Yeah, well, it's because uh, that's is how I feel when I come into Michigan. I want to show everyone a party. And there will be a party tonight at Borders. There will be seven a, Well, there will be a literary reading. There will be. <laughs> Uh, otherwise known as a party. Yes, right? I suppose so. Hi, I'm John Hodgman, author of More Information Than You Require, a book of complete world knowledge and sequel to my best-selling book of complete world knowledge, The Areas of My Expertise. You may also know me as a former professional literary agent and former contributing writer at New York Times Magazine. My printed work has appeared in McSweeney's, The Paris Review, GQ, Men's Journal, and uh, For the Groom Magazine, a magazine for grooms did not last very long for horses or for people getting married no for well you know the bridal magazine industry oh, okay. is is gigantic and so some right. uh not so bright person thought you know what men want to buy ma these magazines too and they don't I, they I, just want to go to strip clubs that's right but the trick would be making it seem to the the bride that it was necessary for them to have a subscription to it yeah well i mean that I think, would have been the, yeah, the marketing I think, angle i think right? that you would have made it a big success i think <laughs> I think that uh, the mistake was that it was actually sort of marketed towards men. Like, they actually thought men were going to go to a newsstand and say, how do I get the perfect abs for my wedding day? But I wrote something about honeymoons there. A little thing on uh, travel. I don't remember anymore. It's all in the past. Was it actually, was it sort of a, a, a narrative piece about your own honeymoon? No, no, it was not narrative. It was pure service journalism. <laughs> this was when I was a professional man. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, this was, you know, when I was a freelance magazine writer, you know, and you just took an assignment and you became an expert on a particular subject really quickly, or you learned just enough in order to plausibly pretend to be an expert. And then you moved on to the next thing, and that's how I Is that uh, what launched trained. you? Yeah, that's how I trained to be a fake expert in complete world knowledge. That was your apprenticeship? Uh, it was, at indeed. The at and the... it paid, it paid uh, about as much as an apprenticeship as well. Yeah. Um, and thanks uh, thanks for actually doing your biography part of the show. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I thought it would make cause... things easier for everybody. Yeah, I won't read this one now. Yeah. <laughs> John Hodgman, ladies and gentlemen. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and pets, if you're listening. This is my third time on the Living Writers program. It is. Here at, uh, at uh, W, call sign, call sign. C what is it? It's WCBN, CBN. FM yes, Ann right. Arbor. Okay. Official station ID, WCBN, FM Ann Harbor. Um, you're your third time. You see, I remember the name of the program. I'm sorry that I, I blanked on the call sign. I've been on tour for... For this for this paperback edition of more information than you require now for, for for how long for several days not very long I mean you know Friday Saturday Sunday Monday what is this Tuesday fifth day Wednesday actually sixth that's day. the live spot is Wednesday <laughs> <laughs> and you said you've had a couple of rough evenings too so it's well good. they weren't they weren't rough it's just that you know last night I was in the, the fictional city of Chicago and when I go and visit my friends in the fictional city of Chicago on uh, on stage um, a tradition, an ill-thought-out tradition has emerged of everyone enjoying a bitter liqueur native to Chicago called Malort. And by bitter, I mean really, really bitter, like far more bitter than any digestif you've ever had. And um, I don't think I've ever had a digestif well, or said it. You know, you know what I mean, <laughs> but I mean, you know, I'm trying to think of an equivalent, um, like a chinar or... An Italian Amaro is a bitter. These are all things that are 
enjoyed Fernet Branca is occasionally shows up and I feel like I'm getting schooled by an expert uh well I did write for men's journal uh on on the subject of bitters uh once men's journal being the magazine of men's everyday lives the <laughs> magazine for men who like to journal um and uh and I did write a, uh, and you know basically uh, alcohol uh is an incredible solvent and so for centuries people have been dissolving what they considered to be medicinal cures into alcohol in order to deliver what they considered remedy. to be medicine remedy yeah. exactly i mean that's what gin is that's what benedictine is the liqueur of benedictine was put together by the benedictine monks to cure what ails you right and it has an incredible I i've mean, always sensed that yeah so you know, and and bitters, with like Angostura bitters, for example, is uh, is sort of the, one of the last remnants of this uh, tradition, right? So bitters was actually Angostura bitters was des- uh, designed as a uh, a gout remedy for the Bolivian army by a German doctor. Um, are you are you making all this up no. on the fly, or is this because I'm looking no, I'm rem- into your eyes and it seems real? <laughs> well, look, I researched it all on the internet, so it it might as well all be made up, as far as I know. But it sure does sound good. Yeah. And in Italy... Bolivia. Yeah. And so, yeah. But to Italy, no. And Jägermeister. Okay, here oh, we go. Jägermeister. So German. We're on a college campus. Everyone knows. Jägermeister has, has, tastes, tastes like essence of pine cones and old sock and, you know... And licorice is Very licorice Yeah, because licorice like pastis or pernod, licorice is, you know, oh. considered to be... Uh, a medicinal uh, herb, right? Yes, yeah, settles sure. the stomach. Exactly. A digestif. See? Uh-huh. So long before <laughs> you were chilling Jägermeister and doing, you know, shots off your friends' heads for fun in college, you were drinking it as an old man in Germany trying <laughs> to feel better. And the medicine did make you feel better largely because it was alcohol. And Malort <laughs> is of that tradition, Malort. except M A L O. RT with an umlaut over the O. It is a it is essentially a a Swedish schnapps style, very licorice and wormwoody liqueur. Wormwoody. Yeah, like absinthe. Yes. But it's only in Chicago and it tastes disgusting. And so I tried to force it on a Chicagoan audience once, like three years ago, and ever since every time I come back they force it back on me. And I, I am forced to How much did you drink imbibe? It. I look, I, I don't measure. <laughs> I'd, I'd, because I'd you several, won't or because you several, can't I had several snifters <laughs> <You did. laughs> Over the course of a long pleasant evening in Chicago Ooh, so a snifter, quite large Yeah, I don't think that's the actual glassware that you would use for Malort But there you have it Yeah, Malort sounds something more like um, some sort of a stein or but, something Or a no, large no, no. ceramic it's a, it's thing a, it's, a, it's a sort of tawny colored spirit it is, I don't even think liqueur would be the appropriate term It's a liqueur you know liquor. what? The, the last time I spoke with you, you were getting some sort of um, other liquor in the mail, I think, that was going to come to you. Did that ever arrive? Like Are you some talking sort about of Dan Aykroyd's Crystal Head Vodka? <laughs> yeah, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I am talking about that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I have not, I've gotten several of them in the mail. Um, I, I think we're going to, I think when we come back from the break, we should talk about Dan Aykroyd's Crystal Head Vodka. But for now, I should say that you're listening to the Living Writers Program with uh, T. Hetzel and John Hodgman and uh, talking about my appearance at Borders tonight at 7 p.m., which will be a dry appearance, I think. I don't. I'm, I hope there's no more Malort in my future. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Pro- yeah, probably not. 
I don't know what they'll they'll. You could have coffee there because they have a oh, Seattle's best. Oh, definitely have coffee. Yeah, no, no, no. I don't mean they have a Seattle's <laughs> best at the borders. In, inside. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Huh. Last time I checked. They don't. Uh, there's no local uh, Ann Arbor-based coffee brewery that I should be. Yeah, there is. What's that? There's well, there's um. Let's see. I think there's a couple of places that roast their own beans, but Ruse Roast okay. comes to mind. Um, there's a there's a nice um. But now I'm now I'm not. There's a nice uh, live radio is is very unnerving, isn't it? <laughs> but I was starting this whole thing out by saying this is the third time I've been on the Living Writers Program here on WCBN FM in Ann Arbor. But the first time I've ever been on the program live, I didn't even know that it was live. Oh, really? So you saw me earlier. I'm ambling in <laughs> late. I was looking for you in the hall. It's, going, yeah, it's taped. <laughs> what are they, they, it's going to be fine. Those people. It's because you're um, a, a minor television celebrity that you just think your fame precedes you and you just, you know, yeah. we lock the doors, but he keeps coming back. I'm folks. on famous minor television personality <laughs> time, which is... Start it up when I get there. You know, Michigan time is like 10 after the hour, so... Is it really? Yeah. Is that what they say? Yep, yep. I've it's, never heard that. It's Why good. are Michiganders uh, notoriously late? It's something about getting to are class. Are they leisurely? <laughs> well, some people, actually, um, in one of my English 125 classes, yeah. the students from New York and elsewhere in Connecticut were getting really... They were writing rants, and they were getting riled up about how slow... Um, Michigan people are crossing the roads like they just oh, sort really? of lollygag as they're you know in, in pedestrian ways I don't know yeah I, mean, I was I was screaming at my limousine driver about that very <laughs> thing on the way over here that's why I was late it's your fault <laughs> blame Michigan no life life is lived well here in, in Ann Arbor is it not oh it is it's a beautiful day John I think you I know you just it was gorgeous. It is, and you, we're now we're going to take a break. Do you want to do you want to sign off for us on the break? I know I, we, I did the break thing too early, you, but that, but it was beautiful. I'm just going to sit back and enjoy. You're listening to the Living Writers Program on WCBN FM with T Hetzel and John Hodgman, guest tonight at uh, Borders Books at 7 p.m. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back to talk about Crystal Head Vodka and other things. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, 
another one of my favorite songs, except I know that one. Yeah. That was that's one of my oldest favorite songs, Brian. Brian Delaney. Brian Delaney. Picking the music. Spinning the wheels of steel <laughs> on the Living Writers Program. On, <laughs> on WCBN FM in Ann Arbor, live. Woo! With your guest, John Hodgman. <laughs> right. Appearing tonight at Borders at 7 p.m. And your host, T. Hetzel. I'm pronouncing your last name correctly, am I? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Close enough? Close, yep. Yeah. All right, good. Hi, T. Hi, John. Nice to see you again. <laughs> so nice to see you. It's really good to see you. In the break, T was saying we ought to talk about writing and not just alcohol. <laughs> and that's probably true. I'm such a stickler. I have a new book out. It's called More Information Than You Require. With Riverhead. Yes. The paperback edition just came out. The new and expanded paperback edition with uh, extra more information than you require. <laughs> extra, extra. Yeah. And it's also, unlike this hardcover edition, which I'm fondling right now, which is very hard, you can hear it as I slam it against the table. The paperback uh, is very soft, very floppy here. <laughs> Listen to this. I wonder if you can hear this. That indeed, as a witness. It's like uh, yeah. It's like uh, it's like if you ever if you ever uh, are a foley artist and you need the sound of bats, use my book. But it <laughs> but it makes it more portable. For example, you can tuck it more places when you're taking it with you. When you're like, where would you think people should take the the latest your latest paperback? Where should they take? Yeah, it? Yeah, like where should they take it with them? Because it is more por- portable. It's soft. It, it fits is. in it more is, places. It is arguably pocket sized. If Not, you have a no. You'd have to have a giant well, pocket. Well, you have to buy the special pants that I'm marketing <laughs> that have pockets just for just for the book. Yeah, I can't believe you didn't get the Groom's Magazine. If you were at the helm of the Groom's Magazine, you would have had it. The, um, the scary, thing is, the the scary thing is that if I had been offered the helm of For the Groom Magazine, <laughs> I would have taken it. Because I do, I basically, you know, when I get those jobs, I'm like, maybe this should be my job for the rest of my life. Because of the stability or the absurdity? Oh, just the feeling of, I, you know, um, well, there was, an, there was an aching for stability when I was a freelance magazine writer. Do you know what I mean? Um, because you, you, it is exhausting being... Because you you're always, you're looking... Yes, you for are what constantly the... searching for work, for work, for work, for work, and you don't... There's a wonder to being self-employed. But How then, long did you do it? Uh, about 2000 through 2006 was the last piece that I wrote for a magazine where it was still a big part of my professional life. And so does it, does it make you sad in a way? Because like, was that also compelling you to write more? I mean, I know you have these two books now, so that's a different kind of writing. Well, I think that, um, I really enjoyed it because the reason that I wasn't freelance magazine writer was not because I loved to write. I hate to write. Writing is very, it's annoying. That's the annoying chore at the end of the pleasant task of researching and finding out things and meeting interesting people and thinking about things. But don't you get when you start, like, even if you're, like, resisting it, once you start, then you're, you're transported, like, you're, you're not, you are making something, you're different, you're... Yeah, that does happen. And, I mean, there, there is a reason that I am a writer and that even though, well, there are a number of reasons why after I wrote my first book... Um, I and then became a famous minor television personality and arguably never had to write another book again. Arguably. Um, I, uh, I did anyway. And I talk about it in my new book. And maybe I'll read a little, a little portion of that. Would that be acceptable? Please. That might explain, explain why. You may recall 
My previous book conveyed a certain amount of information on the history and habits of the wandering men of the 30s known as hobos, and this sparked a measure of hobo mania among a certain segment of the reading population, and I was grateful to receive factual information that you had uncovered about hobos, and especially news of hobo-themed products and services that hoped to, to seduce customers with the timeless romantic allure of being a drunk, penniless vagrant during the Great Depression. Examples included hobo brand hobo soup, uh, which you can find in the Vermont Country Store catalog, uh, the Hobo Deli of Kingston, New York. Someone sent me a picture of the Hobo Deli in Kingston, New York, uh, which um, the sign is reproduced here in my book. It offers extra large eggs for 99 cents, hot soup chili, and oiled ham for two ninety nine. Oiled ham. Help wanted. Uh, hobo Halloween costumes for children, recently featured on uh, an episode of Mad Men. A very common Halloween costume oh. for many, many decades. Like with a stick? Yeah, um, with a bindle stick. Mm -hmm. A bindle stick. A bindle stick, that's right. Stick. Yeah. Back when, you know, children liked to dress up as penniless vagrants during the Great Depression. Did you ever um, try to run away from home and, like, fashion your own bindle stick? No. Even though you didn't know as a child why? No. No, oh. I was a happy child. <laughs> Oh, I, was an, I was an only child, first of all, which means a happy child. <laughs> Why is that? Why? All the attention? Okay, yes. It's just you and your mom and dad and, the th you know, you're, you're like, you're like uh, Nick and Nora Charles and Asta you're going asked, around solving. You're, you're Asta. You're solving <laughs> mysteries. There is a, I mean, it's presuming that you come from a happy, a happy family, you know, an intact two-parent home um, which is that's by no, assuming a lot. Well, yeah, and is no, by no means the standard for happiness in the world, of course. But you know, it, it, there is something special about uh, two parents and an only child. It creates a very stable triangle, relationship-wise, and um, and it's, uh, it was not something I wanted to leave. I had uh, I had two rooms. <laughs> we lived in a large house, and I had I had a suite of rooms to myself. I was like, yeah. I was like a bachelor visitor from afar in this house. Do you know what I mean? Like, was you know, I would wander around at the age of 10 or whatever in smoking jackets and go, hello, mother, father. Very good shirred eggs this morning. Uh, so, no, I did not want to be a hobo. But the fun stopped. Oh, I'm sorry. Was there another question you wanted to ask? All right, then I'll, I'll return to the text if you don't mind. Um, but the fun stopped when news came to me via the internet, courtesy a man named Ape Lad, regarding an actual product called Dick Van Patten's Hobo Chili for Dogs. And at first blush, it all seemed perfectly innocent. A hobo-themed dog food created and sold by the actor Dick Van Patten of Eight is Enough fame. <laughs> uh, although he was now, uh, in his new venture, going under the sobriquet Chef Wolfgang. But upon further investigation, I learned that Chef Wolfgang was not only making hobo chili for dogs, he was also offering three other ethnic-themed dog foods, including Irish stew for dogs and Chinese takeout for dogs, each featuring an illustration of Dick Van Patten in an ethnically appropriate costume accompanied by an ethnically appropriate dog. So Chinese takeout with dogs you can see here on the radio, everybody. Here's Dick Van Patten and wearing a sort of an old-timey Tintin in the Blue Lotus style <laughs> Chinese silk suit and hat. Yeah, and not, next to him, not Enter the Dragon. No, no. And next to him is, um, what a, kind of dog is that? Is it a Taipei? Oh, yeah, I think that's a or, Taipei, yeah. yeah, we'll say. Okay. And in, and One in, of the like, real, like big folds of wrinkled yeah, skin big, dogs. big foldy dogs. 
and uh, Sharpay, Sharpay. <laughs> oh, Sharpay. Sharpay, yeah. And here's um, <laughs> Taipei, Taipei rather is like the capital. <laughs> that's a place. Um, More coffee. And here's uh, and here's Dick Van Patten and Hobo Chili for Dogs dressed up as a hobo with a bindle stick over his head, and a dog that looks suspiciously like Boomer. the dog in the Canadian television program The Littlest Hobo, about a dog that would wander the country and drink wood alcohol until it died. Now, normally, obviously, a children's program, <laughs> yes, <it's laughs> obviously. a popular children's Canadian children's program. I'm sure that your listeners in Canada know it very well. Now, normally, I would cheer such a sublimely unlikely product, except for the fact that it was a fact. None of it was made up. And since you and I are friends, I trust you can appreciate how, for someone in my line of work, the making up of fake trivia, the hideous veracity and non-jokeness of this product would be distressing, to say the least. You might even say that Dick Van Patten was literally stealing food from the mouths of my children and feeding it to ethnic dogs. And that, my friends, cannot stand. So I realized it was time to restock the pond of fact with fiction, as it were, with more information than you require. You'll see from the page numbering of my new book that it is not a sequel. In fact, the page numbering picks up directly where the page numbering of the previous book left off. And further, I announce here that the work will not be complete until the third and final volume emerges sometime in the future. Yeah, when is that? I mean, um, well, the future, I know, but... <laughs> sometime in the future. Right now, I've just completed the extra more information than you require for the paperback edition. We recorded an audio back edition, a uh, 13-CD audio back edition of the book with various guest voices. Don't be concerned. Don't be concerned because... The last two CDs are um, just Mole Man names, so you can just skip those. And now, uh, slowly, I'll start to turn my attention to the third book and completing completing the total volume of complete world knowledge that the three books will comprise. Do you already have notebooks started on that, though, John? Like, where you have, like, you're already sort of, because I picture you sort of collecting and 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 storing maybe in your second room even as a child <laughs> but then like how or is it something where when you I, make the book it's going to be a frenzy it's going to be intense and you're going to be you know people may might avoid you because they don't want to be in your orbit where you'll like put them in the book or whatever it's true people may want to avoid me <laughs> but i can't I, know, I can't speak to their i will tell you all about my process of writing after a break that we'll be taking in a few minutes. But we still have a couple of minutes. Oh, we do. I did it too early again. I'm not made for live radio. But you used to be a DJ. I was briefly a DJ, a college radio DJ in, in Tufts, uh, in Medford, Massachusetts for Tufts University. Not because I went there, because I, live, I lived around there. And they had they opened the community radio. They opened the, the station to members of the community. That's like us. Yeah, that's yeah. So you have like w weird older people and smart alecky high school students coming in and spinning the platters. Yeah, that was me. And I probably played that uh, pocket uh, jockey full of bourbon about five thousand times on my show <laughs> on one Friday afternoon alone. Um, but you know, I, I, I will talk more about the process after the break. But the thing was that um, I. I'm just just now beginning the process again, and um, after really a, almost a full year of not meaningfully writing, um, hmm. and I'll tell you why that happened when we come back. Was it something to do with bored to death? You mean the television program? Yes. 
<laughs> on HBO. I, I keep I keep setting up these perfect outs. No one no one no. takes them. <laughs> How much? What do we got? Two minutes. All right. Listen. I'll take. You know what? I'm gonna, forget the tease. Forget the tease. Someone someone would you know listeners might get the impression that you don't even want to be here, John. No. Here's the thing. Breaking my heart. The thing. No. 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 The thing is. Um, uh, let me think of how I can condense this into two minutes. <laughs> uh, Elvis Costello once was asked whether his second album was going to be, you know, as good as his first. And he said, I know it will not be as good as my first. And the interviewer was uh, alarmed by his, his sort of candor and said, why? And he said, well, you have your whole life to write your first album. And then you have like three weeks to write your second album. And, you ha- and it's true that, you know, so much of my life was downloaded uh, into the first book, the areas of my expertise, jokes that I have been telling for years and years and years and years, that writing the second book was a daunting and thrilling and exciting process. But by the time the second book was done, um, or by the time I was working on it, my life had changed dramatically because of the first one, that I had, my whole career had been kidnapped and I had been put on television and put into a position where, A, I might never have to write again for, for the money, if I didn't have to, and I already said it's hard to write because I don't like to do it, I do it because I have to. Um, and two, because uh, my life was now far stranger uh, than the lies I could make up about it. Um, so I have. So then you had a memoir it, on well, your hands. <laughs> unfortunately, I had to start changing the kinds of jokes that I was telling a little bit and the place that I was telling them from. I was no longer a professional writer. I had to acknowledge that I was now a famous minor television personality, whether I liked it or not. And now it looks like you've got super comfortable with that. With well, your it is very stretch Hummer. It is it is very it is very comfortable, but I am now just really beginning to miss writing a lot and um and thinking about the excitement of going back to it. I mean, I've written throughout. Obviously, I've written for the Daily Show. You know, lots and lots and lots of material. I've written. Are you writing writing more material than what you're on the show, like no. performing? No, or is and, that, indeed, okay. and indeed, okay. you know, it is now fully entered into a collaborative mode. Where often I won't even write the first drafts of the scripts. I will, I will come in and there will be a draft done, and and then I will start collaborating and adding to it. Um, although there are certainly any number of them where I did write the first draft of the script, but it's very collaborative to be sure. So it's not as though there hasn't been a lot of creative output in the various things that I've done and the talks that I've given and that sort of thing. But you know that uh, right because you gave the address to the um, the radio and television. Uh, yeah, the uh, dinner that co- I had correspondence. With, yeah, dinner. the dinner I had with our president. <laughs> yes, which you called the nerd prom. Uh, well, <laughs> I don't even call it. That's what they call it. <laughs> That's what people in D.C. call it, the radio and television correspondence awards dinner. They call it nerd prom. Actually, they call it nerd junior prom. <laughs> nerd prom proper would be the right the White House correspondence dinner, which is what Stephen Colbert did. Oh, yes. a couple of years ago. Okay. Um, so there was certainly a lot of output, to be sure, but um, just recently beginning to feel that twinge of wanting to write again and start collecting material again in the way that you described, which was the slower, organic, non-dervishy way of just finding old books and being amazed that such books exist, like 700 Sandwiches, which was the inspiration for 700 Hobo Names. Do you know what I mean? And these weird old books and strange recipes and and sort of forgotten literature that was never designed to to remain in print do you know what i mean that kind of Mm -hmm. 
that kind of writing and that's how, the kind of stuff I love and love to be inspired by. And how are are you like are you finding them in like the strange um like second hand shops? Or are you going to archives or weird um like uh, small libraries or when, when I'm researching um, and unfortunately, even it turns out writing fake trivia requires a certain amount of fake research at very least. Um, I usually go to a sort of a round of used bookstores that I like in different parts of the world. And I draw heavily upon the Internet, a treasure trove of dubious scholarship if there ever was one. That would be kind of a great book, like where you have like the map of where you're going. Yeah. And oh, but then you probably don't want to give up these places because they're they are like your treasure chests. So you wouldn't want to necessarily. Yeah, it would be hard for me if people were going into Nancy Dole books in Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts, and, you know, scouring the place of the little blue book pamphlets by Gerard. Uh, published in Girard, Kansas in the 20s about how to tie all kinds of knots. I need that material. And it's rightly yours, John Hodgman. You're listening to WCBN. Oh, Ann Arbor. FM. FM. <laughs> WCBN FM, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, it's the Living Writers Program with your guest, John Hodgman, and your host, T. Hetzel. And when we come back from the break, we're going to talk a little bit about Bored to Death and maybe some more about the president and um, and some more about why I hate writing. <laughs> Rejoice and be glad, for the springtime has come. We can throw down our shovels and go on the bum. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. The springtime has come. And I'm just out of jail Without any money, without any bail Hallelujah, I'm a bum Hallelujah, bum again Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again I went to a house and I rapped on the door And the lady says, bum bum, you've been here before Hallelujah, I'm a bum Hallelujah, bum again Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. I like Jim Hill, he's a good friend of mine. That is why I am hiking down Jim Hill's main line. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. I went to a house and I asked for some bread. And the lady says, bum bum, the baker is dead. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. Why don't you work like other men do? Now how can I work when there's no work to do? Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. Why don't you save all the money you earn? If I didn't eat, I'd have money to burn. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. I don't like work. 
and work don't like me and that is the reason i am so hungry Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's WCBM-FM, Ann Arbor. This is the Living Writers Program. That was Harry Haywire McClintock singing, Hallelujah, I'm a Bum. (laughs) Harry Haywire McClintock singing one of the greatest hobo songs of all time, second only to Big Rock Candy Mountain, also recorded by Harry Haywire McClintock. He claimed to have written it, but it's under dispute. Wait, when was it written? Like, when when was it recorded? That recording was probably from the 40s. This was high. That was high, high hobo romanticism period, 40s and 50s. So you didn't meet him, for Harry example, because he was already gone. I do not believe that he's living. Yes, okay. that's correct. Did you, did you um, like, for your research, like, how many hobos did you talk to? And, and were Zero you, hobos. And were no, you, that's not true. There, <laughs> <laughs> and you never know when you might be meeting a former. Well, hobo, the reality is that the hobo, hobo, the hobos that I, the hobos in the that I discuss in the book, and this is something that comes up from time to time. I'm talking very specifically about the uh, wandering subculture of, of vagrant men, some working, some non-working, self-identifying as hobos, uh, specifically in the 1920s and 30s, and not. Not really thereafter. I mean, the culture of hopping trains and the language of hobos and the slang and, and the, the sort symbols. of hieroglyphic hobo symbols and stuff very quickly by the 40s and 50s um, really became a thing of lore more than reality. And certainly nowadays, you know, the, there is train hopping that goes on. And and indeed, I, I, I met a guy who spent some time hopping trains and writing about hobo lore but uh and you know this is this is a nostalgic movement as as much as anything else look you know? homeward angel <laughs> john hodgman no but yeah, do that's you... <laughs> what I, I, yeah, that you're talking about my book look homeward angel yes um but it is it, there there is a you can't go home again quality to hoboism because i mean the reality is that you know like anyone who hops a train and takes on a hobo nickname and 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 scrawls hieroglyphics is imitating something a, a legitimate subculture that doesn't really exist anymore it is a nostalgic sort of imitative culture these people are phobos <laughs> but i, I but I, okay. the hobos i think the, the 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 legitimate hobos of today would be well that's only because you're framing it in a historical context like you're you're putting well that i'm not suggesting because... that there are, there are not impoverished people and i'm not suggesting there aren't homeless people no but i think there are people who live by the train like there yeah. is still oh, a yeah, culture of doing it but they're no, not no, it's not I, but i would not say that there is a continuity of culture there is a there are, i know that there are look i read the same internet websites you do I see the same photo galleries of uh, kids with dreadlocks hopping trains. And I know like on, that there's like a the story or something too. Yeah, I know that there's like a, yeah, there's a neo-anarchist sort of like dropout culture of kids who who you know not teen, just kids though. Joe. Well, not not children. I'm talking about you know like <laughs> young people who who ride the rails. But as I say, that that is whatever that might be. That is not what I'm talking about. And I would argue that is there's no continuity of hobo culture between the 30s and them. They are they are imitating something. Just as the, the folks who go to the hobo convention in Brit, Iowa, a lot of those people are riding the trains. But that's a romantic a romanticization of what I think was a very hard and dangerous life. You're the expert. No. I, that's just my opinion. <laughs> well, you're supposed to be the expert. I know. I know. Do you see how I immediately... Well, bristle usually. when someone gives me the 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 label that i chose for the myself mantle. yeah exactly actually i've never seen you bristle before um usually you're like 
Yeah. What do you mean? I can make myself look big like a cat. <laughs> Raise up or all like my, my hair. Sweater. Yeah, exactly. Like a flying squirrel. Um, yeah. So Harry Haywire McClintock <laughs> sang that song. Hobo material. But I was thinking about what I said before, if I if I may return to that, about how I have to go back to writing. Um, yes. and, and I don't write because I like to. I write because I have to. But is um, that because it, is it a compulsion? Are you talking about that, or or because it it's connected to how you make your way, your living in the world? Well, that's that's the 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 sort of the the difference that I've been exploring. Do you know what I mean? Because I initially wrote, I initially didn't write at all. I was a professional literary agent specifically so I could avoid writing. I mean, I loved writing, I loved editing, I loved reading good writing, I loved being there at the creation of good writing, and if I could get someone else to do it for me, even better. And that's why I represented novelists and and so on because like i could have an idea to share with them or encourage them to explore an idea they had come up with and then i didn't have to do any of the the grunt work of tippy tappy tippy tappy do you know what i mean that's the sound of someone typing um then i realized though that i i, I wanted to write um and I'll, I'll 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 table why i wanted to write i also knew that i could write really well and that it was a way to make money in the world that was going to be more lucrative ultimately than than literary agenting would be and so i out of a sort of economic obligation to myself and to what would soon be a family i decided to start writing for money and then there was always a reason to write when the financial part kind of became less important there was well why do it still if you don't like it so much and the reality is of course i don't like it it is very hard what you say, though, is absolutely true, that when you are writing something that is good, it is like uh, receiving dictation from some incredible part of your brain that you adore and want to know very well. And it is a very, very, very pleasant experience um, that is impossible to replicate in anything else and is, and is more rewarding than anything else. The problem with it is that you have to go through a lot of annoying sort of warm-up in order to find that that open channel that that brings the good writing down from wherever it is in that other part of your brain and lots of times when you sit down and go through that warm-up of writing or you know researching or just starting to pound out sentences that open channel doesn't emerge and you just don't it just doesn't happen and there's kind of no worse feeling than that when it's just like oh boy that's it um so you know uh, i i once I became a famous minor television personality, uh, it became very easy to to take a moment um, and live like Harry Haywire McClintock. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna put myself through that anymore for a while. And people would keep calling me up and saying, "Well, will you write something to to say at the Radio and Television Correspondents Awards dinner?" And I'm like, "Oh, come on, no, okay." Do you know what I mean? Like. How can I say no, but I wish you hadn't called me because I was really enjoying scratching the side of my nose today, do you know? <laughs> but it was also, and I and it was a reasonable thing to do as well because, you know, when you are a writer, you do need to recharge. And the reality had mm -hmm. been that my life had gone through a three-year complete upside-down turnaround um, and I needed to sort of take stock of where I was. Now you talk. And there's yeah. no, I say it that right way. Now. I say it that way because <laughs> you, you say you seem to have something on your mind, and then I was worried that I was just 
No, no. Um, Talking all over you. No, 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 no. Actually, I was thinking that um, not only are you the guest, but you can host today too, John, if you'd like. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, I'm saying that in um, actually genuinely. <laughs> Your host today, of course, is T. Hetzel. This is the Living Writers Program. I'm John Hodgman, author of The Areas of My Expertise and More Information Than You Require, which just came out in paperback. It's WCBN-FM in Ann Arbor. So, T, you had a question for me. <laughs> well, I did in some—well, I have a few up my sleeve Go. Um, right now. Um, so when when you started this, like the— like this project because you had all these these pieces these yes. bits and these yeah. obsessions a, and they, well they're, they're collections of little short articles and lists and sort of incomplete sentences describing fake trivia from a world that doesn't exist you know so the the a, a semi-fictional history of hobos nine u.s presidents with hooks for hands uh, how to rid your house of Scottish Terriers <laughs> infestation. Another infestation. Yeah, another infestations. Handy tips on how to cook an owl. <laughs> but how did you get how this? How to gamble and win. <laughs> this, for the, the sport of the asthmatic man. Gambling is the sport of the asthmatic man. That's right. Um, how did you How did you find um, like the, the voice of authority? Because you said writing is always something that you were good at. And I'm wondering, is it... So there's a couple of questions here. This voice of authority, right. how did you become somewhat comfortable with it or, or taking on like a persona with a voice of authority? Mm -hmm. And and is it... Were you good at writing because you loved reading and it was something that you were always doing as a kid? So... Two completely different questions. Well, Go. the first question, the first question, you know, the, the, the books are predicated on this absurd voice of authority um, in, in which I very blithely describe the both true and fake things uh, with equal sort of um, deadpan. Uh, so the nine U.S. presidents had hooks for hands, for example, and that everyone knows about. I mean, you, there are some you know about, like Thomas Jefferson and, you know, um, uh, Martin Van Buren. That's why they called him Old Kinderhook. Um, but no one noticed that FDR had a hook for a hand, right? No one talked about it. It was hidden from view because it was shaped like a wheelchair. You know, so, <laughs> jokes. But the voice of authority for the books was very easy to to do because of my training as a freelance magazine writer where I would, you know, I would literally be faking it you know every assignment whether it was on bitters or the history of drinks and alcohol or whatever um or you know sword canes or snuff or not snuff films the inhaled tobacco yeah, that's right? what i actually pictured when you said that yeah okay good mm. i just i just you know college students you don't know what they're gonna think no. you know you would have to do a, an enormous a quick a, a very fast amount of research to become uh, to get just enough knowledge in order to convincingly uh, trick people into thinking you know what you're talking about and to write in, a, in a, some voice of authority. It is ultimate fraudulency. Um, of, Do you write outside of that voice then, too, now, John? Like, I know not well, for the know, next all of book. Well, all of my magazining, right, had been yeah. writing from, um, you know, had been writing sincere, occasionally funny but not openly fake. fake. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yes. It was, and, and you know, it is very exhausting, I think, to, to, to the brain to pretend to be authoritative over and over and over and over again. And you can never take a joke too far. 
Well, no, like no. I mean, it. I'm talking about to really pretend, like in a ma- in magazine writing. Oh, well, oh, okay. To gain a certain amount of shallow knowledge and then yes. pretend to be a real authority on that, yeah. so that you can write your article for the in-flight magazine or whatever it is. Like that, I think that took a real toll and made me feel very fake after a while. So then, once I started to insert, and indeed, uh, it was it, one of the sort of transitions into this voice was a piece that I wrote about visiting the Mall of America which was in my first book, was originally written as a straight journalism piece for Men's Journal, and it never made it in. And then I just said, what if I made up a bunch of funny facts to go in? And that's where I was like, this is where I'm writing actually at my most authentic. Because that was more, much more closer to what my real experience was visiting the Mall of America than what I had, than what I had the, the real journalism that I had written. So it's this, this strange... Emotionally closer to my own yeah, experience. Like honest. You know? Yeah, exactly. Like, and, and I mean, I'm not, saying, I'm, not, I'm not saying that there, you know, there actually is, you know, a place in the, in the General Mills serials um, sort of exhibit at Mall of America where they actually display the little tiny leprechaun hats they have left over after they crush and pulverize the leprechauns to go into Lucky Charms. That's not true. But there's something true about that. But it felt it felt true. The whole thing felt very weird and kind of gross to me. I don't think they still have the General Mills Pavilion at uh, the Mall of America. You do good work. Thanks. I don't know. Er- eradicating these <laughs> these evils. I don't, I don't know. I want to do the ID? Like we're going to go to break. Oh yeah. Sorry. <laughs> You're listening to WCBM FM. <laughs> In Ann Arbor, you're listening to the Living Writers Program with your host, T. Hetzel, and your guest, John Hodgman, who's reading tonight at Borders, 7 p.m. from his new book, More Information Than You Require. We'll be back. We'll be back after a break. We're back. It's a Living Writers program on WCBN FM in Ann Arbor with your host T Hetzel. Hi T. Hi John. And I'm John Hodgman, your guest uh, here in Ann Arbor, Michigan tonight for a reading at Bar- uh, Borders. <laughs> that was <laughs> you were almost squishing two of those. I almost did like a very terrible thing. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Which city are you in? Oh, borders you know. number one here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. The That's first right. borders. The ancient temple itself. <laughs> the, the archaeological site itself of the very first borders uh, that was uh, first uncovered there in uh, 1865 by explorers. And I will be reading there tonight at 7 p.m. for my paperback edition of my book, More Information Than You Require. Will you be wearing a miner's helmet? No. I'm going to just It's be like wearing... a reverse spotlight. No gimmicks. No. no gimmicks this time. No tuxedo like last no, time. No tuxedo. No, no feral mountain man companion like yes. the time before. Yeah. Just me and um, a three-piece corduroy suit. Well, that sounds... That's enough to recommend. Yeah, I think so, too. <laughs> I actually think my, my friend and uh, my uh, podcaster friend, uh, Len Peralta, will be there to to talk with me a little bit in front of people um, as well and record it for his podcast job on radio. Ooh. Yeah. ooh. So I, I guess that's a gimmick. That'll be nice, though. Yeah, that'll, that'll be nice. That'll be swell. It'll be swell. And, John, you were asking if we had a Twitter account at WCBN, and I don't think we do yet. No. But, I was well, going to Twitter you guys. Which would have been awesome. Yeah. It doesn't take much to set up, but what, what's going on? I'm not paid by Twitter to set these things up for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so let's talk we mentioned this earlier so why don't we just fulfill it like the board to death like oh yeah because that's your we do your we have some radio promises to, f- to fulfill, pay off don't we because it's in this live last, in this last segment that's true and you never know like hope you'll be back but you know. I will definitely be back oh, oh of course oh, yeah um, uh, yes board to death I, I, it's very interesting you know because I uh, pugilist I, I am a pugilist and bored to death I was asked to be in this new HBO comedy by Jonathan Ames, a writer and an old writerly friend of mine who looks just like I do, awful. He looks like a drowned, drunken ship's captain. He looks ghostly and pale and strange, and he and I knew each other, but we really got to know each other better when we were asked to go to the Aspen Comedy Festival in 2005 to be part of a kind of very endearing but ill-thought-out literary humor panel at three o'clock in the afternoon that (laughs) no one really knew quite what to make of. They were there to see comedy, not weird looking ghostly drunken ship captains reading (laughs) nervously from, from papers at three in the afternoon in a hotel ballroom. And, uh, and yet strangely, we've both entered this, uh, this strange world of of televised uh, entertainment. He, with his fantastic TV show, Bored to Death, based on his work, starring Jason Schwartzman and Ted Danson and Zach Galifianakis, and me, John Hodgman, <laughs> as the oily Lewis. literary rival to Jason Schwartzman's character. And uh, we get into a boxing match at the end of the season. Um, but it's weird, you know. I mean, that's the thing. In the first book, The Areas of My Expertise, I wrote a joke about movies and TV shows that I've had cameos appearances in precisely because it was impossible that it would ever happen, you know, that I would actually play these stock literary characters in all these movies and TV shows, and yet now it has come to pass, and that's an unnerving place to be, uh, existentially speaking. I would imagine so. How do you cope? Well, you know, I I write more fake trivia, I guess. (laughs) I don't know. You know, I just go back to my, you know, I, I take I take uh, take pleasure in my hobbies of falconry and, uh, you know what ping I mean? Ping pong. Yeah, ping pong and uh, my favorite hobby, enormous wealth. It's not that bad. I wash I wash my $100 bills again and think, well, I guess it's okay. So I was paid m- more than $100 to pretend to hit Jason Schwartzman in the face. 
acting is good. Yeah, it's very it's very seductive. You could be, you could be Hallelujah, I'm a bum, but it could drive you crazy too. This world. How so? Well, let's talk for a moment and pay off another radio promise. And be wild-eyed. Dan Aykroyd's Crystal Head Vodka. <laughs> Just when I was getting over Dick Van Patten's Hobo Chili for dogs, right? Right, right. Which is obviously, obviously a work, obviously a work of weird and yet very sincere passion on Dick Van Patten's part, right? All of a sudden, Dan Aykroyd shows up in this like 20-minute infomercial <laughs> talking about... A new brand of vodka that he's bringing out that is in a bottle in the shape of a skull to uh, enable to tap into the psychic energy of the um, uh, uh, the ancient Mesoamerican solid crystal skulls that supposedly have supernatural powers that, that were found in the early part of the century. And he's saying it with the exact same straight face that he used to do similar ads on Saturday Night Live for fake products, right? Like the Bassomatic? Yeah, exactly. Ba- like that, it, was pure, <laughs> it was that pure Dan Aykroyd rapid-fire pitch man, except this time it was for supernatural vodka in a, skull-shaped vo- in a skull-shaped bottle. Where did it take you, John, once you got yours? Well, you know, it, I can tell you one thing. It's vodka. <laughs> Check. Yeah, it's vodka. It did make me feel a little woozy and put me into kind of a hypnotic trance, but I don't know if it uh, if it's supernatural. <laughs> or maybe that has it. Maybe it's like a delayed effect of that. But it was one of those things where after, you know, the just things becoming more weird than I could possibly like make them up. And I felt very angry that Dan Aykroyd had inadvertently stolen this tremendous joke from me that I could have written in a book and say, guess what Dan Aykroyd's doing now? He's, he's shilling supernatural vodka. And there was a lot of speculation on the Internet that it was um, a, 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 like like a, a prank or a, prank like a, or a, viral, like a, a viral video for Ghostbusters 3 or something. And then the, the, and there was the, it was this great question in my mind. Is this a real thing or is this some of the greatest deadpan humor from one of the greatest deadpan comedians of all time featuring quasi-literally a dead pan, a dead face, a, a skull. And then someone did me the disservice, I think, of sending me the vodka itself. And that just, you know, once you're holding it in your hand, once you're holding a magic skull in your hand, weirdly, it, it drains all the magic out of it. And you realize this is just a sincere, you know, vodka enterprise that Dan Aykroyd is into because now he, he, can, he has nothing... I mean, he can do anything he wants in the world, and this is what he. This is to have everything is yeah. to have nothing. Yeah, well, yeah. Hmm. I don't know. I'd still probably rather have everything. Not. Yeah, <laughs> probably not. Yeah. So that that pays off that radio promise, the Crystal Head vodka. That's true. Yeah. That's true. And so, are you? Is acting something that you feel natural with? Like as. Uh, you've just you've fallen into it in some ways. It's weird. I mean, as I say, when, once I learned to lie objectively in my writing, I suddenly felt like that is the most authentic voice. And by lie, I mean exaggerate and push push out away from the truth just enough to draw us back in. And um, and and I wrote these books, and I'm like, well, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. But then it was like television came along and kidnapped me and put me into this 
other job of acting where I have no proficiency <laughs> and where I was like, once again, I'm, you know, now I'm, I'm more fraudulent than I ever was before. I had found a place of authenticity and now I'm the biggest fraud of all time, even, even beyond. Well, keep, I'm, 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 I'm a, you're like the skull, the, I am the like vodka a, skull. <laughs> I am, I am something that has never, I think existed before a pretend actor, a pretend pretender. <laughs> Well, please keep telling us more, John Hodgman. Thank you so much. It's always for, a pleasure to visit with you here. here on the Living Writers Program live edition uh, with UT. Thank you so much for letting me just talk and talk and talk here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. It's been the best. Oh, tonight at Borders, yes. you can see John Hodgman. Please stop by and say hello at Borders at 7 p.m. Borders number one here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. That is all. The mirror on the wall won't talk to me at all Now that I have everything The place inside the brain just doesn't look the same Now that I have everything I wasn't always so fortunate But I knew what I had to do to be well to do And it had to do with the things I had to do This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, November 11th, 2009. From New York City, I'm Dorian Marina. It's Veterans Day. Thousands across the country honor U.S. troops. We call this a holiday, but for many veterans, it's another day of memories that drive them to live their lives each day as best as they possibly can. Today, FSRN looks at several issues affecting veterans, including homelessness, which affects some 130,000 veterans each day. Homelessness is very much a health care issue, first, heavily burdened by depression and substance abuse. The U.S. military has seen an increase in foreign-born troops, but many are being deported despite promises of citizenship. It's hard to put into words what I feel. I'm being removed from my life, from my country. And the military's don't ask, don't tell policy is coming under increasing scrutiny, but often overlooked is its effect on women. We'll hear about a program where queer women vets are sharing their own experiences. All the other soldiers are saying goodbye to their husbands and wives, but I can't say goodbye to my girlfriend. How can I defend freedom if I don't have it? Those stories and more Right after the headlines. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for Free Speech Radio News.